Um, well, uh, at the risk of speaking too soon, uh, I'm happy to report that I am emerging from what I can only refer to as the winter of my throat's discontent. Uh, so, Mitz Hashem, the, uh, the coughs that had punctuated uh, every sentence or every other sentence should hopefully be uh, uh, more for uh, paragraphs and uh, section endings and so forth. Uh, again, I hope I did not uh, speak too soon. Um, Good. And so, we begin with the opening of Parshas Vayishlach. So Vayishlach is about the, uh, begins with a message of peace that uh, Yaakov sends to Esau, Vayishlach Yaakov Malochim Lefanov. That's the very beginning of the Parsha. And before we get to take a look at uh, one of the uh, aspects of the message, we, we note, and it's the well-known Rashi, that when the Pasuk says, Vayishlach Yaakov Malochim Lefanov, Malachim says Rashi is Malachim Mamash, actual angels. And the reason why that's so significant is because there is another potential meaning of the word Malachim, and that is very simply messengers. People can also be Malachim. The word Malach comes from the word Melacha, which means a task or a job. And anyone who is tasked with something is a Malach. Indeed, <coughs> Unclus himself translates the word as uh, shlichim. And Rashi, we know, where, wherever possible, if he has the choice, will always side with Pshuta Shal Mikra. And yet somehow uh, Rashi felt that it was more appropriate to explain the word Malachim as Malachim Mamash. And Mefarshim are quite curious to find out as to why that is. And a classic answer, a very beautiful answer <coughs> to this question is found in what, as far as I can tell, is the earliest commentary on Rashi. There are many, many dozens, if not hundreds, of commentaries on Rashi over the ages. I believe the first, unless there's an earlier one, and I'd be happy to be uh, uh, informed. The Truma Sadeshen, that is to say Rabbi Yisrael Isserlin, one of the great Ashkenazi Rishonim, he's famous for his halachic work, Truma Sadeshen, um, which is quoted, I wonder if there's even one ruling or minhag in the Sefer Truma Sedeshen which is not recorded in the Shulchan Aruch or Ramah. It's a very, very authoritative source for Psak and Minhag of Ashkenaz. And he <coughs> also wrote a perush on Rashi's commentary. And there he explains as follows. We have a phenomenon in Parshas Vayetze which goes in two directions, namely the switching off of the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael and Chutz Aretz, what they used to call in the home country the changing of the guard. And this is something that we find in the beginning of the Parsha with Yaakov's dream with the ladder. Rashi tells us, Malachim Elohim Olim V'yortimbo. You have Malachim going up and down, and Rashi notes <coughs> the Malachim that were going up were not the same Malachim as those that were going down. Because it was, he was on his way out of Eretz Yisrael, so the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael were going up, and Malachim of Chutz Aretz were coming down. That's on the way out from Eretz Yisrael to Chutz Aretz. 
But we have the very same thing seemingly in reverse at the end of last week's parsha. If we have a look at the penultimate pasuk, which is in, uh, well, the way that it's divided into chapters, <coughs> the beginning of Paraglamid Beis, Pasuk Beis. V'yakov halach ledarko, Yaakov has taken leave of Lavan, v'yifku vo and he is met and encountered with Malachim, angels of God. Rashi explains, these are the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael, who have come to escort him to Eretz Yisrael, Malachi but the next pasuk says, Yaakov Yaakov said when he saw them, Machane Elokimze, this is a, indeed a camp of God, and he called the place Machanaim. Why does he call it Machanaim? Machanaim means two camps. <coughs> Why are they two? Rashi explains, because you have now two camps. The Malachim of Chutzla Aretz are yet with him, and the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael have come to meet him. Machanaim, two camps. But what's very interesting is that we, what seems to be the mirror image of the beginning of the parsha, the changing over of the Malachim, is not done in exactly the same way. By which we mean that on the way out, the Malachim that had been accompanying him went up and then the new Malachim came down. So there was no overlap between the two. That's on the way out. And yet, on the way back, we do not have the reverse, the same in reverse, as if to say, Malachim of Chutzlaretz leave, and then Malachim of Eretz Yisrael come. Rather, <coughs> the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael arrive while the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael are still there. Those are Rashi's comments on the final psukim of Parshas Vayetze. And what are we to make of this, of this change in the way that the, uh, the, the uh, replacing occurs? Rather, says Truma Sadeshen, that's why Rashi makes his comment at the beginning of Vayishlach. Because Yaakov understands that even though the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael have already come to accompany him, and seemingly he is no longer in need of being accompanied by the Malachim of Chutz they're still there. Meaning, <coughs> there's still need for them. There's still a purpose for them. What could it be? That's why Rashi says, if those Malachim are still around, it's because they're there to be used. But used for what? Yaakov doesn't need them. He has the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael. Rather, those are the Malachim that are sent, Artsa Seir, Sedei Edom, Malachim of Chutzla Aretz, are sent. That's their final task, actually. They finished looking after Yaakov, but they're now sending a message to him. And, and, to, and to summarize, therefore, it's, it, it really places the Rashi in context. It gives us the beginning of our Parsha as a progression or a continuum from the end of last week's Parsha. If you have two camps, it's because you need two camps. Malachim of Eretz Yisrael to protect you. Malachim of Chutz Aretz to send a message to Esav. And thus Rashi says, Malachim Mamash. Of course, <coughs> it's not hard to understand why, why Yaakov would prefer to send actual malachim as opposed to human beings. He has no idea about Esav's frame of mind, state of mind, how he'll respond. Uh, Esav is not famous for responding in a calm and rational manner to anything. And therefore, <coughs> there is the worry that when he finds out that Yaakov is alive, he may literally kill the messenger. Thus, Yaakov feels better to send, for want of better, a better expression, Esav-proof uh, messengers who uh, he can't really do much to them, and they'll get the message back intact. 
with themselves intact. So these are the Truma Sadeshan's uh, uh, comments regarding the, the opening Rashi. But let's take a look at a famous Rashi. Um, that is to say, another famous Rashi. Because Yaakov's message <coughs> in the second Pasuk of the Parsha, Pasuk Hey, if we read the Pasuk to get our, our context, he told them to say, Say the following to my master Esav. Ko amar Yaakov. So says your servant Yaakov, I've been living with Lavan and tarried until now. What is the specific meaning of those words, Imlavan Garti? <coughs> Rashi provides two explanations. I think the second one is more famous, but we'll read them in order. Firstly, says Rashi, Garti means, Lo na'asesi sar I never became a prominent person there while living with Lavan. Elager, only a ger, that is to say, always treated like a bit of an outsider, a lightweight personality. <coughs> Why is that significant? Does he want Esav to... Uh, to pity him, to empathize with him. Rather, <clears throat> there are major implications for the, for the primary bone of contention between Yaakov and Esav. The brachas from Yitzchak. And what did Yitzchak say? Have a gevir la'achecha. You will be a gevir la'achecha. You will be considered a prominent personality. Therefore, says Yaakov, it never happened to me. Ein chakadai lisno osi al birchasavicha. So, <coughs> There's no need for you to hate me over the brachas of, of your father. Sheberchani hevi gevir la'achecha. He blessed me to be a gevir. Shaharei l'oniskai mabi. Because they were not fulfilled through me. That's Rashi's first explanation. What's very important, even before we move to, from the first to the second, is always to ask the question, before we get into why Rashi gives two explanations... Why does Rashi give any explanations? After all, if the words are relatively straightforward and self-understood, no cause for comment. And it's particularly important to address this here, because what Rashi is responding to is the word garti, because (coughs) lagur has a connotation of transience. As Yaakov and his, his sons say, Lagur ba'aretzbanu, we're only here for a while, as, sh- as short as possible. The English, sojourn. It's a transient, a transient state or a transient presence. And, uh, of course, Yaakov has been there for quite a while. He's been there for 20 years. 20 years is, is quite a long time, even in those days. Why is that called garti? <coughs> when a person lives for a while somewhere, it's not called lagur, it's called, it's called lashevet. And like Vayeshev Yaakov, Slashevet. That's what Rashi's responding to. The reason why uh, I think it's very uh, important to mention this is because this is a classic example, I think, where it's possible for someone who knows Hebrew not to get this point. And the reason why is because Hebrew, as we have it nowadays, modern Hebrew, <coughs> based, of course, on the Hebrew of Chumash, but there are certain 
uh, in, in words that are chosen which don't necessarily have the connotation that they used to have. And a very good example is Lagur. If you ask a person, Efra Tagar, you're not asking them where are they sojourning. You're asking them, where do you live? Efra Tagar. No one asks someone, Efra Tayoshev. <coughs> a person will say, Anigar po hamishim shana. I've been living here for 50 years, but that's already not Gar. I've been living here all my life. So then why is that called gar? Because that's the way that we use the word nowadays. So it doesn't have that, that transient connotation anymore. Uh, although given some people's relationships with their uh, uh, landlords, perhaps that could explain a thing or two. But uh, in principle, it's, it's a permanent thing. If a person would say, we wouldn't understand. It sounds like they've just been sitting in the same place for, for 50 years, etc. and so forth. And that's why in cases like this, we, we need to be appreciative of the asset that's called Hebrew as it's spoken, but also alert to some of the nuances uh, and uh, connotations that perhaps have almost lost in translation between one language, language and what is... Uh, as, ostensibly uh, the same language itself, either way. So Rashi co- is responding to the word Eblavangarti, I was there for a long time, but never taken seriously. That's his first perish. <coughs> Second perish, says Rashi, Dover Acher, Garti, uh, the well-known Garti, Begematria Taryag, has a numerical value of 613. Not only does it have the same gematria, it has the same letters, it's an anagram. So this is really, if you, if you want to get someone started on gematrias, it's a perfect place to start. Uh, very little can go wrong. And what does it mean? I've been with Lavan, I've been keeping Tarag Mitzvah, and I didn't learn from his evil ways. So one cannot help but notice, leaving aside the question of how Asaph will relate himself relate to the gematria of uh, Garti, which we've uh, addressed on a different occasion, but the two perushim of Rashi are very different from each other. Not only are they different, they're, they're almost, one could say, antithetical to each other. Because when you think about it, the first is very conciliatory in nature. Don't, don't be upset with me, the brachas weren't fulfilled through me, you don't have to be angry at me, uh, and that's one type of message. The second, <coughs> very different. The second is, I've been keeping Tyreg mitzvahs, so don't start up with me. I mean, why would Esau be interested in whether Yaakov has been, has been keeping Tyreg mitzvahs or not? I, we don't think that Esau has been worrying that maybe Yaakov is, has, has been slacking. Uh, all the while that he's been uh, with Lavan. Clearly, Yaakov is saying this in order to intimidate Esau, as if to say, we both know that a confrontation such as ours will be based on spiritual merit. My spiritual merits are high. I've been keeping Tyreq mitzvahs in whatever way and to whatever extent it was possible to do so in that time. So you have the first parish of Rashi is a message of appeasement. But the second is, is a message much more of, it kind of has a more of a bellicose type of uh, uh, connotation. Ready, ready for war. How do these two fit together, these two opposites? And <clears throat> a very straightforward and elegant and important answer to this question is given by the Levush Ha'ora, 
Rav Mordechai Yaffa, one of the Talmudim of the, Talmud of the Ramah, in his Perush and Rashi, Bal HaLevushim, Levush HaOra. And the truth is, says the Levush, these two explanations of Rashi, they seem to be at odds with each other, but they are not. Because the truth is that the full message really is blended, as messages very often are. In other words, Yaakov is saying to Esau, I want peace. I do. Okay? And if, you, if you're angry at me, please don't be angry. I do not want you to be angry at me. But that's not the whole message. The full message is, I prefer peace. If you choose war, be prepared. I have been keeping Tariag mitzvahs. And you need to know both of those things. And in a sense, they're not a contradiction because Yaakov wants Esau to know <coughs> that, he's been, that he is prepared for any eventuality. I prefer peace, but I'm ready for war. That's the whole message. That's, and that's the, the, the composite message. And the truth is, one could perhaps say a little bit more. It's, and uh, without putting too fine a point on it, uh, there's, there's plenty of resonance uh, from this idea uh, in, in history down the line. If Yaakov is talking to Esau and what he wants is peace, part of what will allow him to achieve peace is letting Esau know that he's ready for war. By which we mean that if Esau only hears that Yaakov wants peace and that's all, for Esau that might be taken as a sign that he can just do what he wants with Yaakov because all he's heard from Yaakov is peace. Uh, it's shown no readiness that Yaakov is prepared to defend himself if necessary. So, so Peace with Yaakov can very easily for Esau be translated into peace without Yaakov. And that's, and that's the end of him. And therefore, what, in, what will encourage Esau in the direction of peace is to know that if it comes to it, Yaakov is ready for war. <coughs> and, and that, again, no, no need to be marich, but, but this is something that, that we see on other occasions also. There's a classic comment of the of the Aruch Laner, it's in his Drushas. We quoted last week the Aruch Laner, the Sefer, on Eschidushim uh, HaMaseches Sukkah. But in his Drushas, Minchas Ani, in Parshas Tazria, he actually quotes his father with regards to uh, the phenomenon, the, well, the much-discussed phenomenon of the hardening of Paro's heart. And everyone asks, how did it work? And did he have no choice? And, and was his Bechira absolutely switched off? And if so, how can he be punished for, for making the, for the responses that he gave? He, had, he, he literally had no choice. <coughs> but the Aruch Laner says, <clears throat> the hardening of Paro's heart was giving him a misread of the situation that, that would then not allow him to back down. What does that mean, practically? It's interesting, the first thing that Moshe warned would happen, well, way back in Parsha Shemos, is Makas Becherus, plague number 10. Now, plague number 10, if it's number 10, is because it was the worst plague. And Para was warned about it from the outset. Why? With what in mind? Says the Aruch Laner, that was the hardening of Paro's heart. How so? Because Moshe has threatened the worst, but doesn't deliver. He does other things. None of them were pleasant, but they're not makas becherus. They're lower level plagues, relatively speaking, with the blood and with the frogs. And... But how does Paro interpret that? Because in the mindset of Paro, if you threaten something and you don't deliver, there can be only one reason. The actual reason, namely, it's to give Paro a chance. It's a show of compassion. It's a show of patience. 
Power doesn't recognize something like that. If you threaten something and you didn't deliver, it can only mean one thing. You're incapable. And, that means, and therefore, Pyro translates all of this as saying, Moshe and whoever is backing him are incapable of delivering that, the plague that they threatened. They're not as strong as they said, as they, said they were. <coughs> if I only hold on, I will persevere and win out. So in other words, the, the tragedy, so to speak, again, there's no, there's no uh, sympathy for Pyro, but, but the, the tragedy of the situation is that Pyro felt that Moshe was dealing with him the way Pyro would deal with others. If you can, you do. There is no not attacking if you can. If you don't attack, it's because you can't. And because for, that's the language that Pyro speaks, that was the basis of the hardening of Pyro's heart. So, uh, again, certainly uh, much to ponder there, just coming back to Rashi's Tupe Rushim of Garti. I'm ready for peace, but I'm ready for war. And perhaps you, sh you should know that I'm ready for war. Why? Because maybe that's what will nudge you in the direction of peace. If you didn't think I was ready for war, you'd go to war. <coughs> a complementary or accompanying uh, explanation of the Rashi, again, there's no end of, of commentators who speak about these two Gartis, comes from the Maharal in the Gur'arye. And he actually opens with a question of his own. According to Rashi's first parish, Yaakov is saying, I know that our father blessed me that I would be a Gavir, and you were upset because I got the brachos. But look, I've been with love in 20 years. No one took me seriously. I didn't become a Gavir. The brachos didn't come true. So no hard feelings. No harm done. Says Maharal, Yaakov seems to be taking a liberty with Yitzhak's brachos. I mean, as far as we know, the brachas did come true. I mean, they have to come true. <coughs> he seems to be, uh, so to speak, belittling the power, the efficacy of, of Yitzhak's uh, blessings for the sake of making peace with Asa. But, but that doesn't seem to be acceptable, you know, at Yitzhak's expense almost. It's like he's saying to Asa, I, I think we both were foolish for, for taking Yitzhak's bracha so seriously and we got into a whole um, huff about it, but if only we knew that the brachas wouldn't be fulfilled, so then we wouldn't have worried so much. I mean, that, that's at Yitzhak's expense. How can this be? Says Maharal, that is the contribution of Rashi's, Rashi's second parish. Taryag. I've been, I've been keeping taryak, meaning I have held firm to an elevated spiritual position. How is that relevant to his message to Esav? Because, says Maharal, you need to know what Yitzhak's blessings were about. There is a very interesting uh, comment of Rashi on Yitzhak's brachos. We know the words very well. Hashem should give you from the, dew of the from the dew of the heavens the fat of the land. And Rashi uh, has a rather uh, interesting comment, a, a rather enigmatic comment. And that is, it's in Perik Kaf Zayin, Pasuk Kaf Ches. What does Mital HaShamayim mean? Kimashma'o. It means what it sounds like it means. Namely, dew of the heavens. Okay. Anything else? Yes, says Rashi. Umedrish agoda yesh panim. There's a medrash agoda that goes in many different directions, and that is the end 
of Rashi's comment. So what's interesting is, uh, firstly, <coughs> do I need Rashi to tell me that Tal HaShamayim, the dew of the heavens, means what it sounds like it means? I mean, that, that much I could do by myself. And secondly, you know, Rashi is no stranger to enlisting sources from Chazal if he feels they're relevant to the Pasuk. But he tends to tell me what they are. He just doesn't tell me that they're there. If Rashi brings the Medrash, so bring the Medrash. But he doesn't. All he says is, you know, there's a lot of Midrashim about this. Okay, I assume so. There's a lot of Midrashim about everything. I don't need Rashi to tell me that. Unless what you mean to say is that you'd like to choose one which you feel is relevant. Rashi doesn't choose. So what's the meaning behind this very open-ended statement of Rashi? There's many, many different interpretations in the Medrash. Okay. Says Maharal. What Rashi is saying is, (coughs) even without citing the examples of the Medrash, you need to know that there's many Midrashic interpretations of these blessings. Why? Because otherwise you'd be left with a, with a very difficult question. What is all the fuss about? The brachas, and who should get the brachas, and, and Yitzchak, and, and Esau should get it, or Yaakov should get it, and then, and then, and, and then Rivka gets involved, and then Esau gets sidelined, and it's the cause of a great deal of aggravation for him and for us, says Maharal, over what? Look at the blessing. Look what they were all going for this whole time. And what do you see? <coughs> Tala Shamaim, Dew of the Heavens, says Maral. That's it. I mean, it's a good thing, but that's it. That, the whole conflict is over that. Dew of the Heavens, fat of the earth. And if you don't get those, all is lost. And that's why Rashi says, you need to know there's more to these blessings than meet, that meet the eye. Because you need to understand what the whole fight was about. Why was it worth it for Yaakov to go through all of this in order to get them? I'm not even going to tell you what they are, says Rashi. Look at the Medrash, you'll see. But just look there. Be aware that there's more to these blessings than meet the eye. And, and possibly that, that is even uh, equal, if not primary, in what the blessings are. Because they're all spiritual things. Spiritual qualities, spiritual assets, spiritual talents, uh, spiritual resources. That's how the Medrash explains and that's worth fighting over if you're Yaakov and that you do not want those to be left in the hands of Esau. He will squander them and abuse them. So with this earlier comment of Maharal in mind as to what the blessings are about, ostensibly or on the surface, and it's not a binary, it's not either or. Kemashma'o, yes, Jew of the heavens, fat of the earth, but there's much, much more. <coughs> Why is this relevant to us? Because what Yaakov is saying to Esau, says Maharal, is look at what happened to me. Look at the area in which I've done well with Lavan and look at the area in which I have not succeeded in Lavan. Go back to Yitzchak's blessings and then you'll see what the blessings were really about. They may have been about something that isn't really so significant for you. I know you want to be a Gvir and I took the blessings, but did I become a Gvir? No, but I've been keeping Taryag. And that's Yaakov's way of saying that apparently the primary content of the blessings was spiritual in nature. And therefore, he's, this is not at Yitzhak's expense. He's not saying Yitzhak's bachas didn't come true. He's saying they didn't come true in a way that should be any of any interest to you and the cause of any upset to you if I took them. Because if I would offer you Tariag mitzvahs now, would you take it? 
No, you'd run a mile. So here I am with Tariq Mitzvahs, and that's what the blessing was about. <coughs> and that's how the Maharal explains that these two comments of Rashi go together. Okay, so hopefully we've done at least some provisional justice to, uh, to the famous Rashis of Taryag, and now let's move a little bit further into the Parsha. And we come to Yaakov's uh, struggle with the Ish, right? his struggle with the Malach, which is again enigmatic in the extreme. <coughs> the Pasuk doesn't tell us who this Ish was, it doesn't tell us who, what the fight was about, um, but clearly... This uh, entity that Yaakov is wrestling with has uh, significant powers because Yaakov asking for a blessing of all things. Let's have a look in uh, Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kafzayin. Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kafzayin. So the struggle has happened and he knocks Yaakov in the thigh and then he says he needs to go. Dawn is broken, so you have to send me. Again, a, a lot of background to this. It, 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 we need to be filled in. Why does he need to go? Just because the dawn is broken. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to release you unless you give me a blessing. So he does. What's your name? Yaakov. And here it comes. Vayomer, lo Yaakov yomer Your name will no longer be said to be Yaakov, ki im Yisrael. Your name will be Yisrael. Ki sarisa im Elohim v'manashim You've wrestled with angels, you've, wrestled, you've, confronted, you've contended with people, and you have prevailed. So that is what Yaakov received from this malach. His name which changed from Yaakov to Yisrael. Interestingly, the, this Malach is not the only one in our Parsha to change Yaakov's name to Yisrael. And by the way, <coughs> we weren't aware that he has the um, authority to do that. I mean, his job is to wrestle with Yaakov. We, we do, we're not aware that within his um, toolbox is the ability to, to, to give people new names. But apparently it is. Nevertheless, this is... Um, something which Yaakov has in Perik Lamed Hey, Pasuk Yud, from Hakadosh Baruch Hu himself. Perik Lamed Hey, Pasuk Yud. Vayomer lo Elokim. Hashem says to Yaakov, Shimcha Yaakov, your name is Yaakov. Lo Yekorei Shimcha Od Yaakov. But your name will no longer <coughs> be, be called Yaakov. Your name will be Yisrael. So this is very interesting. At the beginning of the Parsha, Yaakov has his name changed to Yisrael by the Malach. At the end of the Parsha, he has his name changed again, or similarly, by Hashem himself. Which leads us to ask the question, um, why both? <coughs> what is Hashem doing? He's, he is underwriting the original change that was given. It's also interesting that in the second verse, if we just read it, try and read it in a straight line, again, Perik Lamed Hei Pasuk Yud, Hashem says to him, Shimcha Yaakov, your name is Yaakov, Shimcha Od Yaakov, your name will no longer be Yaakov. If the whole point of this Pasuk is to change his name from Yaakov to Yisrael, why does Hashem begin <laughs> the sentence by saying, your name is Yaakov? I mean, not for much longer. That's the whole point. Why does it need to be emphasized 
just as it's being changed. And finally, very interesting, we see the closer we look at two psukim which seem to be saying the same thing, the more we'll see that perhaps they're not exactly the same. In the earlier pasuk, it says, the Malach says, Lo ye amer Yaakov. Your name will no longer be said to be Yaakov. Lo ye amer. When Hashem changes his name, he says, Lo ye kare Yaakov. You will no longer be called Yaakov. That is an interesting question. What is the difference in connotation between Lo ye amer and Lo ye kare? As far as we know, they're basically the same thing. If, you, if a person's called something, his name is said to be that thing, and vice versa. <coughs> but the two words, each pasuk has a different has a different word, and why is that? Once again, the Arach Laner, in his droshos, to our parsha, says Arach Laner, we are under the apprehension, under the understanding that... Um, this was the one moment in Yaakov's struggle with the angel where he defeated him. And if you'll ever hear a good thing, and this is Sarashal Esav, this is Esav's spiritual overseer, so that's what Chazal tell us. But this is like one moment in history where he actually owns up and says the truth and says a good thing and gives Yaakov his name change. This one moment in history. It's what they used to call, I'm not sure if the expression still exists, a Kodak moment. In other words, if only you could, to, to, just, to, just to capture that moment. I think nowadays <coughs> we have the opposite problem. Every moment is captured. I'm not sure how many moments are capture worthy. Uh, we seem to, seem to have become lopsided in that regard. But either way, there's one moment where uh, the, the Malach comes good and says, oh, you're right, your name will be Yisrael, and uh, you know, you'd almost give him an aliyah. Says the Aruch Laner, it's not so. The Malach of Esav is the Malach of Esav through and through the whole time. What he was looking to do with Yaakov by changing his name to Yisrael was actually something that was dangerous for Yaakov and his descendants. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu later on appears and changes his name, he is, not un, he is not reinforcing what Esau's Malach did. He is undoing. He is reversing what Esau's Malach did. How so? This is rather um, esoteric. What does this mean? <coughs> Says Aruch Laner. We know that in Yaakov's own personal experience, I mean, you can see the difference in connotation between the name Yaakov and Yisrael is that Yaakov, everything is relative. Yaakov is Ishtam Yosheva Holim. He's a great son. He's, he's, he's Yaakov Avinu. But Yaakov is relatively a lower level, and Yisrael is when he really ascends to this higher level. You see, after he struggles and confronts with the angel, he graduates, so to speak. He graduates from Yaakov to Yisrael. On the one hand, that's a wonderful thing. And for Yaakov, it's, it's, it's an upgrade from Yaakov to Yisrael. However, there is a danger, because Yaakov is our father. He's our patriarch. Yaakov has numerous descendants, and his descendants exist on a number of levels. Some of them the higher echelons, some of them lower. And in fact, we know that the Jewish people themselves are sometimes referred to as Yaakov, 
and sometimes Yisrael. And sometimes it refers to different strata within the Jewish people, spiritually speaking. Some of them are on the higher level, they're called Yisrael. Some are on the lower level, they're, they're called Yaakov. So, if Yaakov's name is completely changed to Yisrael, <coughs> to the extent that Yaakov no longer exists, there is only Yisrael, then there is only room for his descendants who can, who can be classified in the category called Yisrael, because they have a father, right? they have patronage. What about those who are on the lower level called Yaakov? Sorry, no one there for them. There used to be, there used to be someone called Yaakov. He's not here anymore. He's become Yisrael. So if you don't make the grade spiritually to be on the level of Yisrael, so you get cast away because, because there is no one there to, to be a patriarch for you. You don't have schus avos because you don't have an av because you're Yaakov and, ya- and there is no Yaakov anymore. That's the danger for the, for the Jewish people of Yaakov's name completely being changed to Yisrael. And the truth is, <coughs> says Rav Hutner, picking up on this theme, we do know that Yaakov's chidush when it comes to Jewish identity is that unlike his father and unlike his grandfather, who had more than one child, but only one remained in the program. Avram had numerous children, but only Yitzhak remains. Those that did not uh, make the grade, it was not impossible for them, but they did not avail themselves and did not uh, achieve that. They got cast away. <coughs> the same is true for, for Yitzhak's children. His two sons, Yaakov and Esav. Esav could have been part of the program, but he abdicated and he, and he, was, he was separated. The Chiddush of Yaakov is that that will never happen. Even those of his descendants, will never happen again, even those of his descendants who are uh, of, a, of a lower level, but everyone is within the fold. And the reason why that is so is because he is Yaakov. And it's interesting, says Rafutner, that in, in the confrontations of Avram and Yitzchak, each one in their own sphere, we never find that they sustained any uh, injury. Or damage. Whatever they did, they emerged, however successful it was, but they themselves emerged intact. And ironically, it's Yaakov. And Yaakov is known as Bechir Sheba'avos. He is the choice among the patriarchs, seemingly on the highest level, because he's building on the achievements of Avram and Yitzhak. And when he has a confrontation, he sustains an injury. He comes away limping. Why? <coughs> because, says Pachad Yitzhak, the scope of those for whom Yaakov is a patriarch is, is, is that much broader than Avram and Yitzchak. Avram and Yitzchak carry with them the future of those who are within the fold. Yaakov carries with them everyone, all of his descendants. And therefore he needs to, in a sense, bear even those on a lower level. And, he, and that's what, thus he sustains this injury. What's very interesting is, says Rav Hutner in classic style, the, the halachic legacy, so to speak, of this, of this uh, confrontation is the Git Hanoshe, right? We don't eat the Git Hanoshe. <coughs> and the way that it's expressed in the Pasuk is, Alkein lo yochlu bene Yisrael es Git Hanoshe. Bene Yisrael will not eat the Git Hanoshe. Of course, we are bene Yisrael, but what's the point? The point is, one may have thought that if you're in the category called bene Yisrael, Maybe you can eat from the Git Hanoshe. Why? 
Because the get that injury, which is the whole right, what is that? That's because Yaakov is carrying descendants who were really would be called Yaakov. If a person could only be shown to be Yisrael, so for people like him, Yaakov didn't need to be injured, and maybe therefore he doesn't have a prohibition of the Gid Hanosha. To that end, the Torah says, we're all one nation. Although it was for the benefit of Bnei Yaakov that he, is, that he sustained that injury, even Bnei Yisrael do not eat from the Gid Hanosha. No one eats from Gid Hanosha. Bnei Yaakov are brothers with Bnei Yisrael at the end of the day. And I think it's worthwhile just to mention it, an association that occurred to me even just uh, this afternoon as uh, assembling um, the thoughts. There was someone uh, a little bit further down the line <coughs> who tried to prize away Yaakov from Yisrael and damage Bnei Yaakov. And that was Bilam. We find that Bilam consistently refers to two groups, Yaakov and Yisrael. In his blessings, Matovo Alecha Yaakov, Mishkanasecha Yisrael, Darachachav Mi Yaakov, Vikam Shevet Mi Yisrael, etc. Yaakov and Yisrael. He keeps on, he consistently refers to them as two groups. Why? Because part of his plan of attack against the Jewish people was to single out those that are called Yaakov as being outside, beyond salvage and vulnerable to his curses and to his designs and whatever. <clears throat> and the truth is, that's how Lavan remembers Yaakov. Bilam, according to the Gemara, is, was one of Lavan's sons. <laughs> so his, his uh, encounter with Yaakov is when, if you didn't make the grade, you were out. And in a sense, Bilam is looking to, to bring back the good old days when, when, when that was the case. And if you're people like Yaakov, you're vulnerable to people like Bilam. His mistake was, no, Ever since Yaakov went back home, he is, his full graduation is that he is both Yaakov and Yisrael. And even his descendants, who you would call Yaakov, are still blessed because they still have a patriarch called Yaakov. That's, that's the limp that he sustained. I think it's very interesting that there are two people in the Chumash who sustained the limp. Yaakov and Bilam. Yaakov in this week's Parsha, as a result of his uh, confrontation, and Bilam when he's on his way to try and damage those called Yaakov. And perhaps that limp, right, his, his leg was squashed against the, against the wall, Vayelech Shefi, and he's limping. Maybe that was a reminder for him that, that you're, you're going up against someone who himself is limping because he's carrying the entire Jewish people, not only Yisrael, also Yaakov. Either way. <coughs> With this in mind, we could getting back to the angel and Hashem, Esav's angel, Lahavdil, and Hashem, <clears throat> we can see that their name changes were very different in Gol. Because there is a dangerous side now to changing Yaakov to Yisrael. And that is the goal of Esav's angel. He wants to <coughs> he wants Yaakov to graduate to become Yisrael immediately, instantly, which will then leave at risk and vulnerable all of his descendants who are called Yisrael. Says the Aruch Laner, what is the difference in connotation between the term Amira, saying, and Kriya, calling? In terms of distance, we all appreciate 
that when do you call someone when they're far away? And then as they get closer, you speak to them. Kriya, calling, represents distance. Amira, saying or speaking, represents proximity and closeness. And if that is true spatially, in terms of space, <coughs> it is also true, says the Arachlaner, in terms of time. That is to say, when you talk about the future, if Amira means close and Kriya means far, but you use those terms for the future, what is the difference between them? Whether you're talking about the near future or the distant future, that's the difference between them. And therefore, says Arachlaner, when Esav's angel changes Yaakov's name, he says, Lo ye amer Shimcha Yaakov. Word Amir, because he wants it to happen soon, in the near future, as soon as possible, because the sooner his name changes to Yisrael, the sooner Yaakov is cast away, and all of Yaakov's descendants, who are classified as such, <coughs> will be cast away. He is Esav's angel to the end. Through and through, even his blessing is a curse for people that are called Yaakov. And that is why when HaKadosh Baruch Hu appears to Yaakov in Perek Lamed Hei Pasuk Yud, the first thing he says is Shimcha Yaakov. Your name is Yaakov. And, and even though he's, he's telling him that the name is going to change, but it's not changing anytime soon. Not completely, not exclusively. You will not be shifting in a binary fashion from Yaakov to Yisrael. Your name is Yaakov, and it will remain so as long as there are people called Yaakov who need you to be Yaakov. Now, your name will in the future be, be changed to Yisrael. When? Lo Yaakov. It's going to happen in the distant future, meaning that full shift from Yaakov to Yisrael in the distant future. Why? When the Jewish people <coughs> have all gotten themselves to a level when, where they're all Yisrael and none of them are Yaakov, then, they, then you, the, no one will need you anymore to be Yaakov. That's, that's, that's going to take a while. That's going to be a good bit of history until, until the Jewish people are ready for that. When that happens, then lo yukare in the distant future, Yaakov. So it's a, a, a fascinating analysis, again, of two psukim, which on the face of it seem practically identical. And what the Malach is doing, Hashem is just reinforcing and affirming. It says, look closer, you'll see. Whatever the Esau's Malach is doing, Hashem was undoing, because it's not good for the Jewish people. And in classic, as a classic drush PS, you could say, <coughs> he draws our attention to the Pasuk in Malachi. Malachi Peregimel, I believe, which is the Haftarah for Shabbos HaGovah. And then and the Pasuk says, uh, the, the beginning of the Pasuk is well known. The Pasuk says, Ki ani Hashem lo shanisi. For I am Hashem, I have not changed. All right? Ani Hashem lo shanisi. The Pasuk goes on to say, Va'atem b'nei Yaakov lo chilisem. And you, b'nei Yaakov, you have not disappeared. You have not been... Uh, destroyed. What is the meaning of the first part? Ki ani Hashem lo shanisi. So we understand lo shanisi, Hashem says, I haven't changed. Hashem hasn't changed. But the Archlaner darshans a little bit and he says, whenever we're familiar with the term ani Hashem as an emphatic term from Haggadah Shal Pesach. What is being emphasized when Hashem says ani Hashem? Ani velo malach. 
When me, not a malach. When Hashem says ani Hashem, what he's saying is me and not a malach. And when he describes something that he's doing with the words ani Hashem, what he's saying is this is what I'm doing, not like the malach. Because the malach wanted to change your name immediately. However, ani Hashem, ani velo malach, unlike the malach, lo shanisi. I didn't change, meaning I didn't affect that change in you. <coughs> Not yet. And who are the beneficiaries of that? What does the second half of the Pasuk say? Va'atem b'nei Yaakov lo chilisim. All of you who are called b'nei Yaakov, you did not disappear. You would have if I would have changed your name from Yaakov to Yisrael, because there would be no Yaakov and there's no place for b'nei Yaakov. But ani Hashem, unlike the Malach, lo shanisi, so these are uh, the wonderful ideas of the Arch Laner in his Drushas Minchas Oni. Well, we've worked quite hard in the Parshanut, so I'd like to end this week uh, with a Maisa. But of course, the Maisa is there to give us further insight into the Psukim, as all good Maisim should be. And where does it begin? Uh, the Beis HaLevi, the first of the, the, first of the Soloveitchiks, that is to say the first of the rabbinic Soloveitchik uh, dynasty, Rabbi Yosher Ber Soloveitchik, Rosh Hashiva in Velazhin, and then Rav in Slutsk and Brisk. <clears throat> there was a tradition among the Soloveitchiks that when they traveled, they did not dress in the rabbinic uh, dress. That is known also of Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, um, and it, it, uh, it, also, it began with his father, uh, the Beis HaLevi. And what that meant was that uh, there was one occasion where he came to a, you know, a tavern, he's traveling. He, he doesn't, he's not dressed like a rabbi, he's dressed like an ordinary Jew. And that's really what the, the innkeeper took him for. Not to his credit, because <coughs> he didn't look particularly uh, well off. And the innkeeper actually treated him uh, very badly meaning he just he was rude to him and he was uh, completely gave him some room which you no one no one wanted that room and but this is for this old yiddle he, he he put him in that room all of this changed a little bit later on that night when people who knew the base halevi couldn't believe that he's staying in this inn and they start talking to him much to the extreme mortification of the innkeeper who now realizes that this person that he has ill-treated, this elderly Jew, is none other than the Rav of Brisk. So now what? So he rushes to the Beis Halevi and he says, uh, Rebbe, I have, to, I have to ask Mechila from the Rav. And the Beis Halevi said, no you don't. You have no requirement to ask Mechila from the Rav. He's, uh, but he says, well, he was, what does that mean? I mean, I know how I, treat, I treated the Rav. I treated the Rav terribly. And Beis HaLevi says, no, you didn't. Mm. You treated the Rav mm. uh, just fine. Mm. So this was very baffling for the innkeeper. And the Beis HaLevi says, I'll explain to you what I mean. And he opens up Chumash to Parshas Vayishlach. And we will be looking at Perik Lamed Gimel. Pasuk Zion. <coughs> Where are we in the, uh, in the Parsha? We're in the episode of, of uh, Dina and Shechem. So Shechem, he takes Dina, right? Dina goes out to see, what, uh, look around, 
he takes her and uh, is, uh, deals terribly towards her and holds her captive. And, <coughs> and the Pasuk describes the reaction of Yaakov's sons. Uvinei Yaakov, ba'u kesham Yaakov's sons, right, Yaakov himself had heard about this. He didn't say anything. He waits till his sons come home. When they come back from the field, and when they hear this, they were terribly distraught, extremely angry, <coughs> because he did this terrible thing uh, in right? To, to take uh, a daughter of Yaakov, that shall not be done. And there begins their, their negotiations with Shechem and, and, and Hamor. And, and important to note, as the Ramban discusses and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky amplifies, Yaakov expected them. He understood that when they say, you need to do the Mila, to be like us, and we'll all be one be happy nation, Yaakov understood that they, that they didn't mean that. The only thing is, he didn't realize how far they would take it. He understood that they were looking to use this to incapacitate the people of Shechem with what in mind, so they can be able to go and take Dina out. He did not expect them to take everyone out. So this was then the the, uh, different, uh, in a sense, uh, plans of Yaakov and his sons, but but, uh, we're at the initial reaction stage. Says the Beis Halevi, the, the words are very interesting. It says, Kinevala Asab Yisrael. He did this terrible act in Yisrael. lo And such things should not be done. Of course, such things should not be done. If it's a terrible act in Yisrael, so such things should not be done. What is added by the final three words, Vechein lo Says Beis Halevi, you, you have to understand. Yaakov's family, right, who are being called Yisrael here, they are particularly sensitive to, to a violation like that, to an offense like that, if it's in their family. Obviously, it's their sister. <coughs> However, the Pasuk says you should not misunderstand that the subtotal of Shechem's guilt is that he did something that's not appropriate for a Jewish girl. The Pasuk concludes with the words, V'chein lo yeaseh. It's not acceptable for anyone. In other words, it was obviously most keenly felt by them as a Navala in Yisrael and a terrible abomination that had happened in Yisrael. But you should not misunderstand that if they weren't Yisrael, this would be acceptable. It's never acceptable. And that's what the Pasuk is underscoring just before it moves on. For Yisrael, it was worse. But the Chena Yaseh, that should never be done. No one should, no one should, uh, should have that experience. What, do, what does this have to do with me, you, and the in? And the in? Says Beis Halevi, you came to ask for Mechila from the Rav. And I told you, you don't have to ask Mechila from the Rav. It's true. Why do I say that? Because from the minute you found out that I was the Rav, you were all respectful. And therefore, if you ask Mechila from the Rav, it could, be, it could be misunderstood, misconstrued as saying that the way you treated me is the way one shouldn't treat a Rav. That's why you ask the Mechila from the Rav. But the truth is, you don't need to ask the Rav Mechila. You need to ask Yosher Ber Soloveitchik from Mechila. Because the way you treated me is the way that no one should be treated. It's not a question of Kovat HaRav. It's called Kovat HaBrios. 
person comes into your inn and uh, you know to treat them in the disdainful and uh, disgraceful way that you did so don't ask the rav for mechila ask yosha ber soloveitchik for mechila and if you do i'll grant you mechila but so this is the <coughs> you see how the how the briskers learn the chumash you take a posik in Yishlach, but it's Torah Chaim. And, and it, it teaches us so much. Sometimes it, it's, it's misrepresentative. If, if something terrible has happened to, to, to uh, someone who's of dignity, of stature, but it's a type of thing that shouldn't happen to anyone. So the irony is you apologize to his eminence, but you shouldn't be apologizing to his eminence. You should be apologizing to him because that's, that's something which, which shouldn't happen at all. And this is the, 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 the vision that we're given by, by the Besalevi. And indeed, as a follow-up to the story, he, he invited this innkeeper to Brisk. He says, come, come to Brisk and you'll see what it means to treat, to treat a newcomer. The Hachnosas Orchim, the standards of Hachnosas Orchim in the Soloveitchik family were beyond the beyond. I mean, the people lived there indefinitely. People took the Rebvelvo Soloveitchik, that is the son of Reb Chaim, who became the, the Rav of Brisk. He said, growing up, <coughs> growing up, we were told by our father, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, do not interfere with anyone doing anything in the house. Whatever they do, whatever they take, whatever they help themselves to, it said we, 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 we couldn't understand it. It's, we, it's like we were the guests. And that's called uh, to, to make the Mebene Besecha. These were the standards. And it's important to know because the Soloveitchiks are, are actually, uh, in a sense, much more famous, rightly so, for their revolutionary, incisive uh, approach to Talmud study, which, uh, and again, deservedly so. But what shouldn't go unknown and what shouldn't go unnoticed is the Tzidkus that accompanied it. And uh, there's much to expand upon that, but uh, for, uh, in terms of our discussion, uh, that's enough said there. So we'll leave it over here for this evening, and uh, wish you all a good night and a wonderful week ahead. All the very best. Uh, uh.